In this episode, we'll be looking at the dark sheep of Nintendo's modern lineup of systems, the Wii U. While the Wii U left many gamers unsatisfied, in retrospect, the hardware was interesting and held its own, and it has a surprisingly well-rounded library of games. During an interview for an Iwata Ask segment in 2011, Satoru Iwata claimed that development of the Wii U began in 2008, only two years after the release of the original Wii, three years before the system's reveal, and four years before it was ultimately released. While the console was considered a major flop for the company, many concepts from Nintendo's time working on the system can clearly be seen with the release of Nintendo's far more successful Nintendo Switch. With The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, some features were actually dropped altogether as a result of Nintendo wanting both the Wii U and Switch versions of the game to be more or less identical. During an interview with Game Reactor, producer Eiji Aonuma revealed that the team had regrets over holding back on some elements which could only have been possible using the Switch's HD vibration feature. He wanted to allow the player to experience the same touch as Link, such as holding certain objects and feeling a sense of how it may feel in the player's hands through vibrations. He said that it would add a sense of realism, but would have also required the team to work on scenes specifically revolving around this feature, something which would have been impossible to replicate with Wii U hardware. He also claimed that now this constraint isn't held over the team, and with the Switch continuing to develop well with audiences, they would be able to use this feature in their next Zelda release. However, whether this will happen due to the introduction of the Switch Lite, which has removed the HD rumble feature, is yet to be seen. The Wii U initially had a lot of support from third-party developers, including Capcom. One of Capcom's offerings was Monster Hunter 3 Ultimate, an updated version of the Wii's Monster Hunter Tri. This version had a fair amount of new content, including a new set of quests. One of the new quests, called Avenge the Fallen Hunter, had a sly reference in its description, which reads, My weapon bounced off its hide like a toy. That thing moved so fast. Before I knew it, I was not cold. The medicine man says it's just a scratch, but the pain, avenge my flesh wound. This seems to be a reference to the Black Knight from the movie Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which you, if you haven't seen it, you have to watch it, where the knight fights King Arthur and gets all of his limbs cut off, saying the lines, Tis but a scratch. A scratch? Your arm's off. And, Just a flesh wound. Ubisoft also gave their support to the Wii U at launch. Their first game for the system was Zombie U, which was actually a reimagining of one of Ubisoft's very first games, simply called Zombie. Similar themes and mechanics are used in both games, such as if the character's health is depleted, they turn into a zombie and roam the room they died in. The main difference is that Zombie was set in a mall, much like George A. Romero's Dawn of the Dead, whereas Zombie U takes place on the streets of London. Originally, Zombie U was planned to be a raving rabbits game on the PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360 called Attack of the Killer Rabbits from Outer Space. It was then changed again to an arcade-style FPS Wii U game called simply Killer Freaks from Outer Space before becoming the reimagining of Zombie. Another show of support for Nintendo, even though Nintendo funded it, came from Platinum Games, The Wonderful 101. The game's cast wasn't initially set to be an original lineup of heroes, but rather an all-star cast of Nintendo characters. The title's gameplay was envisioned as a way of satisfying fans of each character, with the assumption that players would be drawn more towards some of their favourite characters over others, which is why the decision was made to introduce all of the characters at the same time. 
This would allow fans to pick and choose the hero they want from the get-go. After the wonderful 101 was shelved as a concept for some time, the decision was made to drop the all-star lineup, creating a new roster of superheroes in their stead. Director Hideki Kamiya decided to base some of the heroes on a number of characters from his earlier works. By completing a series of challenges, the player is able to unlock Wonder Bayonetta, Wonder Jean, and Wonder Rodan from the Bayonetta series. It's even possible to unlock Hideki Kamiya himself, who utilizes his sunglasses to attack opponents under the name Wonder Director. There are even references to Kamiya's earlier characters, such as Pose Man, who doesn't just have a similar appearance to Beautiful Joe, but strikes many of the same iconic poses, and even has a move called Heroic Forever, similar to Joe's Beautiful Forever. Wonder Cheerleader is also based on Sylvia from the same series, with a gun named after her technique, Desperado. Moving back to Nintendo's own projects, while the WarioWare series moved away from its more recognizable format, Game & Wario served its usual purpose for Nintendo hardware, providing players with a variety of play styles that used the entire console's functionality. This concept of using the game as a demonstration was at the core of the title's development. Nintendo even initially planned to include the game pre installed on the Wii U console itself, giving the audience a free piece of software to get to grips with the console's gamepad. With the game having been developed in-house by Nintendo, alongside another team working on Nintendo Land, it's unsurprising that some of the same code would be used across both games. The voice used by the Adventure King found in the Pirate Solo game, alongside several other minor characters, used a modified version of the voice of Monita from Nintendo Land. Hello there, Great One. I am the Adventure King. Nintendo took real care with Manita's voice stylings, even changing the character's accent for PAL territories, giving her a British accent instead of an American one. I am Manita, your park guide. I am Manita, your park guide. Nintendo Land actually hid one particular feature. While many of the minigames found within the digital theme park are exclusively touted as solo attractions, this doesn't mean they actually have to be played solo. If a second player makes use of a Wii Remote, they are able to assist during gameplay. In Balloon Trip Breeze, player 2 is able to push obstacles and balloons. Yoshi's Fruit Adventure can be played by multiple players, with each additional player able to remove one piece of fruit from a stage. In Octopus Dance, a second player can restore lost hearts as well as interact with the game's background. For Donkey Kong's Crash Course, time bubbles can be created which slow down any moving objects, including the first player, allowing for more precise movements. Ninjas can be held and prevented from moving or attacking in Takamaru's Ninja Castle, and up to 50 obstacles can be removed from the courses of Captain Falcon's Twister Race. As you might expect, some Wii U games had mistakes in them, including Nintendo's own titles. With Paper Mario Color Splash, the company made a major mistake before release. On September 22, 2016, customers who pre-ordered a digital version of the title were given the ability to pre-load the game ready for its intended release date on October 7th, granting them immediate access on its day of launch. However, Nintendo managed to accidentally grant all of the players access to the preloaded data immediately, meaning that those who preloaded the game actually just fully installed it instead. This mistake was quickly fixed, with the preload being removed from the store within hours of the mistake being discovered. Xenoblade Chronicles X is another exclusive game that many consider to be deserving of more recognition. 
the game was actually slightly altered during international localization, in particular, the level of customization which could be made to the playable character. In Japan, the player had the ability to adjust a female avatar's bust size, though when released outside of the country, this feature was removed. That wasn't all, with the character Lin Lee also having a particular outfit, a rather revealing bikini, removed from the game, likely due to her age being 13. When asked about the situation by Kotaku, CEO of Monolith Soft and executive director of the title, Tetsuya Takahashi, had this to say. As a developer, I do feel like it would be ideal to be able to adjust content so that it's culturally acceptable, whether it's in the US or in the EU. For example, there was a discussion about the breast slider. Jokingly, I said, well, would it help if we had a crotch slider for the male? Obviously, this was a joke, but they responded, obviously, it's not going to work out. I do realize there's a cultural difference between what Japanese people think and what the rest of the world thinks. I think what's important is that we make sure that the end user who actually plays the game doesn't have a bad experience. If that change is going to help alleviate that, then I think we should definitely make it. And now it's time for this episode's random piece of trivia. Today we're going to be taking a quick look at Cold Fear and its origins. Cold Fear released in 2005 for the PlayStation 2 and Xbox, developed by Darkworks. While Cold Fear was ultimately published by Ubisoft, Darkworks had started development in collaboration with Namco. Work began in 2003 following the cancellation of Darkworks' other project, Los Mantis. On release, Cold Fear was a survival horror third-person shooter, but during its initial stages of development, it was intended to be a new take on the Time Crisis license, Namco's long-running and hugely popular arcade light gun series. After Namco had dropped the title for unknown reasons in 2004, Darkworks went to Ubisoft, forming a relationship that would see Ubisoft work with the developers not just for the release of Cold Fear, but to develop a Ghost Recon title, and ultimately publishing their final game, I Am Alive, before Darkworks, went into liquidation in 2011, a year before I Am Alive was released. How much of Cold Fear came from reworking an earlier Time Crisis project is unknown, but it would be unlikely for Namco to have considered a horror genre for the series, nor the inclusion of parasitic monsters. Did you know? In Mario Kart 8 and Deluxe, if the player goes to the water park track and waits near the Aqua Cups, a quiet tune can be just barely heard. This melody is actually from Super Mario 64 and plays in Big Boo's Haunt in the Underground Merry-Go-Round. This track was clearly made with a lot of diligence, which can be seen throughout the entirety of Mario Kart 8's development. The game almost had racetracks where the player could drill their way underground. According to the game's producer, Hideki Kono, in Mario Kart 7 we had the glider and submersion in water, and so when we were thinking about new ideas for 8, we thought, well since we did all that, why not put a drill on the carts and have them go through the earth somehow for subterranean racing? He goes on to say they ended up scrapping the idea in favor of making a 
new anti-gravity gimmick instead. But interestingly, a mining cart called the Drill Master made its way into Mario Kart Arcade GPDX, which landed in Japanese arcades a few months before Kono's team wrapped up development on Mario Kart 8. Unfortunately though, none of the arcade game's courses were designed around a digging mechanic, and the drill was only for show. But in that same interview, Kono teased that throughout the series, ideas scrapped in development sometimes got brought back for future titles, implying there's still a chance underground drilling could debut in Mario Kart 9. After drilling was cut to make way for the anti-gravity mechanic, the Mario Kart 8 team implemented a sub-mechanic based on Japanese history and culture. For hundreds of years, Japanese kids played with spinning tops called Begoma. They'd use a string to send them spinning onto a canvas arena, and the Begoma that spun the longest and knocked the other out of the arena was deemed the winner. They were incredibly popular for centuries, but kids mostly lost interest in them after World War II, when newer, fancier toys came about. Here you can see the way Begoma spin and bounce off each other when they connect. This is exactly what happens in Mario Kart 8 when two racers bump into each other during anti-gravity, with both racers doing a quick spin and gaining a speed boost. Or as Mario Kart 8's director Kosuke Yabuki explained it, the spin boost idea comes from Japanese spinning tops. We thought that the sight of spinning tops bumping into each other as they whirl around was perfect for the behavior of carts in the anti-gravity areas. Players will need to come up with different strategies than those used for racing over normal normal track sections, so I'm sure this will create situations never seen before. Mario Kart 8's soundtrack was the first in the series with live music. Whether it was jazz, funk, or classic Nintendo tunes, the entire score was recorded live. Many of the musicians Nintendo hired were Mario Kart fans themselves, and knew far more about their instruments than the developers, so they improvised to make the soundtrack even better than Nintendo imagined. In a Famitsu interview we had translated, Hideki Kono recalled, The musicians looked at the sheet music and played it on the spot. Many of them played Mario Kart, so it was easy to express what we were going for. For example, for Bowser's Castle, the sound chief said, Since this music's gonna be for Bowser's Castle, please make it sound evil. And the musicians replied, In that case, let's really make the guitars twang. And if there were any parts they didn't like or didn't go well, they redid it countless times. In the end, more than three hours of their performances made it into the game. Another rumored experiment was using four-player split-screen on the TV and a fifth player on the gamepad, a feature that Sonic Racing implemented two years earlier. And similar to the five-player mode in New Super Mario Bros. U, but none of those features made it into the game, with Yabuki explaining, I thought that for Mario Kart, playing with someone else on the same big TV screen gives the game a more competitive feel. Because of this, we decided to limit the local multiplayer to TV split-screen, and have the development team focus their efforts on the graphics and 60fps frame rate. In the end, the only gamepad features they implemented were tilt controls, a mini-map, off-screen play, and the most important feature of all, honking your horn. Hiding in the game's internal data, there are a few more clues about unused ideas and cut content. The data contains four images labeled Cup Icon DLC, the Egg Cup, Shine Sprite Cup, Boo Cup, and the Blue Shell Cup. Six months after the game released on Wii U, the Zelda DLC added four brand new tracks packaged as the Egg Cup, but the other three DLC cups never got used. Well, at least not as of this video's publication. We should note that in an interview with Japanese outlet Famitsu, director Yabuki didn't rule out future DLC coming out for the Switch version. The internal data also has an unused icon for a Magikoopa, perhaps Kamek, who could also be found in early builds of Mario Kart 64, but got cut from the roster during 
during production. Kamek's had some cameo appearances all throughout the series, then finally became a full playable character in the 2019 mobile game Mario Kart Tour. So at this point, it seems likely he'll make his way into Mario Kart 9, or possibly Mario Kart 8 Deluxe DLC if any more happens. Diddy Kong seems likely as well. When Mario Kart 8 released on Wii U, director Yabuki apologized to fans, saying, There are some characters that appeared in previous Mario Kart titles, but unfortunately didn't make it into this game, such as Bowser Jr., Dry Bones, King Boo, and Diddy Kong. I really apologize to players who liked these characters in particular. Yabuki eventually brought all those characters back for the Deluxe Edition on Switch, except Diddy Kong. But Diddy later returned for the mobile game, and he's in some of the Mario Kart arcade games as well, so we expect to see his mainline series return sooner or later. Except for the arcade titles, which include characters like Pac-Man and Miss Pac-Man, Mario Kart's pretty much only featured characters from the Mario universe. According to Hideki Kono, that's because Shigeru Miyamoto had a secret rule limiting the roster. If they added more Nintendo characters, Miyamoto thought it wouldn't be Mario Kart anymore, it would be, quote, Smash Kart. But it was the addition of Miis that blew the gates wide open. In a 2013 interview with MTV, Kono said, When we put the Miis in, Mr. Miyamoto was even kind of like, you know, aren't you crossing the line here? This doesn't exactly feel like Mario Kart. But you know, with the Mii being a basic part of the console, we were able to put it in and have him actually play it to get his sign off. It's still an unlock, you can't select a Mii from the get-go. So for some reason, it doesn't exactly cross Miyamoto's secret line, but it kind of came close. But once the seal was broken, DLC and the eventual deluxe edition on Switch added characters from Animal Crossing, Zelda, and Splatoon, with seemingly no end in sight for the series' future. Kono's team also created two brand new characters, Baby Rosalina and Pink Gold Peach, the latter of which was created because Mario Kart didn't have enough heavy women. Of the game's 12 heavyweights, all of them were men except for Rosalina, who Hideki Kono had specifically asked the Galaxy team to make super tall so he could use her as a heavy heavyweight in Mario Kart Wii, but Kono's team wanted one more for Mario Kart 8, and a lot of the game's developers were women, so they gathered them all together and said as a counterpart to Metal Mario, they wanted a Peach clone. The ladies in the office were asked what color she should be. The men were initially considering Gold Peach or Platinum Peach, but the women wanted Pink Gold Peach, and that was that. The day after Mario Kart 8 launched in 2014, a girl called Rizupicor posted a 27-second clip to YouTube and labeled it Waluigi vs. Luigi 1. When we talked to her, she said she uploaded it just to show one of her friends and never thought anyone else would ever see it. But someone else re-uploaded the clip one day later with the much more clickable title Luigi Riding Dirty, Death Stare in Mario Kart 8, and the Riding Dirty song laid on top of it. The video quickly went viral, racking up millions of views and spawning an entire subreddit dedicated to Luigi death stares. Seemingly everyone was sharing them, and they even made their way onto Fox News. The truth was that every character in Mario Kart 8 uses that same animation when they pass another racer, but Nintendo fans found it hilarious coming from Luigi, who's usually known for his timid and cowardly nature. When E3 rolled around a couple weeks later, Nintendo added Luigi's death stare to their show. Nintendo of America marketing staff told GamesBeat, It was a collaborative effort with Robot Chicken. They came up with ideas, and so did we, but they let us know, from a comedy standpoint, what they thought would work. There are different examples of when it's the right time for us to take something that happens organically and make it part of corporate messaging. It was a late addition, and we thought we could pay homage to the fans. Another Luigi death stare was used in a Japanese commercial soon after, but now, after almost
almost a decade later, the subreddit's been abandoned and the meme left to rest. But for a few short weeks in 2014, a Mario Kart clip only meant to be seen by one person took the internet by storm and became an official part of Nintendo history. Remember that attention to detail we mentioned at the start of the video? Well, there's one place where Nintendo's usual diligence took a rain check. The original Wii U version of Mario Kart 8 had a mode called Mario Kart TV, which allowed players to rewatch and share videos of their races. This mode not only has its own music, but also has me background chatter that can't be heard anywhere else in-game. In late 2016, YouTube user Harm believed this background chatter sounded a little too human and decided to investigate. After extracting the appropriate audio file, Harm discovered that the chatter was actually in English, and had simply been sped up and reversed. The file seemed to be a stock recording of a public space like a cafe, with a handful of people chatting away for about 40 minutes. Harm listened to the chatter in its entirety, and found that at one point in the recording, a woman can clearly be heard saying the following swear. You might be wondering how this slipped by staff, but since Nintendo is made up mostly of Japanese devs, it's understandable how a sound designer could have overlooked an English swear while adding assets to the game. And once the audio was flipped and sped up, the chances of anyone else catching it would have become almost zero. Released in 2013, The Wonderful 101 was a title made by Platinum Games in partnership with Nintendo for the Wii U. It was directed by famed Japanese creative Hideki Kamiya, the mind behind such games as Okami and Beautiful Joe. It was an action game where the player controlled a group of superheroes called the Wonderful 100, who must face off against an invading alien coalition named the Geth Jerk Federation. To understand how the game came to be, we will trek through the history of its development, a story of unforeseen twists and turns from behind the scenes of Platinum and Nintendo. The origin of the collaboration between Nintendo and Platinum Games takes us back to around 2010. Platinum had not long since released its first games to commercial success and a warm reception among critics. These included Bayonetta and the Nintendo Wii exclusive Mad World. Their newfound success drew them a lot of attention from publishers around the world, including Nintendo. Hitoshi Yamagami, a producer at Nintendo's software planning and development division, began taking an interest in them. About six months later, Yamagami was introduced to the head of Platinum Games, Tatsuya Minami, by a mutual acquaintance of theirs. At some point during their conversation, it was agreed upon that Nintendo and Platinum should try working together. This was the beginning of a partnership that would continue for years to come. Returning to the Platinum Games offices, Minami tapped Hideki Kamiya to lead a proposal that would be presented to Nintendo for a new game. The type of game this would be was left to Kamiya, with Minami providing only vague guidelines. He wanted it to be a title which would encompass some of gaming's biggest all-stars, with Nintendo characters taking center stage. 
Kamiya decided that it would be an action game of some kind, but the idea of a crossover on this scale forced him to think outside the box. He didn't want a game where players would control one character at a time at different points throughout the story. This would make balancing screen time between various characters and franchises difficult, and Kamiya wanted each of these beloved icons to receive an equal level of representation. Born out of a desire to achieve this, he imagined a unique gameplay system that would have every character on screen simultaneously. Kamiya attributes books from his childhood as his inspiration for these ideas, the main one being Swimmy by Dutch author Leo Leone. This was a short story about a small black fish whose friends are one day swallowed whole by a large tuna. Swimmy travels the ocean and eventually befriends another group of little red fish. He realises that they can survive if they stand up to the larger fish together. They learn to swim in formation and mimic the appearance of a larger fish to scare away the hungry tuna. As a child, Kamiya was excited by the idea of small, separate entities joining together to form something stronger. This conceit, he divulged in an Awata Asks interview, was at the very heart of the project from the beginning. How it would manifest itself in his pitch to Nintendo was the suggestion that the various characters would come together to form giant shapes like a fist or a sword. Players would use these gymnastic structures to fight enemies and solve puzzles. One of the hypothetical scenarios that Kamiya proposed to Nintendo was a handful of Mario characters like Peach, Yoshi and Luigi holding onto each other in a chain to form a bridge. Mario could then walk over them to traverse a large gap between platforms. Kamiya called these manoeuvres Unite Morphs, a term which was held onto and appeared in the game that was eventually released. Platinum Games employees are tight-lipped about the character lineup they were pursuing for their All-Stars game, especially with regards to non-Nintendo characters, but one idea that Kamiya himself was willing to share was that he wanted to include Captain Falcon from the Nintendo Racing series F-Zero. He would have been able to arrange characters into the shape of a ship, the Blue Falcon. In the past, he's also mentioned that Link from The Legend of Zelda was another A-lister he wanted to include. All of them would have been led through their adventure by an original main character, a new hero that would have been introduced in this new game. In 2014, I contacted Kamiya via Twitter, who confirmed that this character didn't become the central protagonist of The Wonderful 101, Wonder Red, or any of the characters featured in that game. This mystery lead character, he said, is lost forever. That's because Nintendo wasn't interested in pursuing his all-star action game, citing concerns about the project's scope. They believed that a game filled with so many characters within the design framework Kamiya had presented was over-ambitious. He wanted each character to have their own unique Unite Morph, which in the eyes of Hitoshi Yamagami was a mistake. Some of his first words spoken at that meeting were, quote, This is impossible. Platinum's gambit to gain access to Nintendo's classic properties failed. Kamiya went back to the drawing board. Around this same time, he had been shopping around another original game to publishers that he'd been wanting to do for the Nintendo Wii about dinosaurs. This project wasn't picked up either, leading him to revisit his ideas from the aforementioned All-Star pitch shortly thereafter. Whether this concept could have a future was uncertain, but Kamiya refused to give up on it, continuing to believe in the project's core idea. 
years. Having been unsuccessful in securing well-known IP from other companies, the director considered replacing them with original characters of his own making. He envisioned a team of five superheroes, each donning costumes of red, yellow, green, blue and pink respectively. They would transform and fight side by side, each with their own unique abilities. It would employ the same Unite Morph gameplay he had previously proposed to Nintendo. Then came the idea to up the superhero count from 5 to 100. Kamiya reasoned that a much larger group of costume heroes would produce more powerful and more comical imagery. The concept was influenced by Japanese superhero tropes like Henshin, the notion of heroes undergoing transformation sequences to gain their power, which was popularised by shows like Kamen Rider. Kamiya had referenced these tropes in the past with another title of his, Beautiful Joe. At this early stage, however, the director had no set picture in his head for what the game would look like. It was only when he turned to Mai Okura, a Platinum Games artist, that it would start to take on its distinctive visual style. Having previously worked with Kamiya as the UI designer on Bayonetta, Okura was his first choice for the role of lead concept artist on this new project. Together, their vision for the game's appearance was forged, a look inspired by American comic books. The characters were proportioned cartoonishly with large heads, but everything had an intently dark edge to it. The first character sketched out was Wonderette, who featured slightly more muted colours in comparison with his finished appearance, and carried realistic weapons like a machine gun, which were later left out. While Kamiya approved of the design, he offered a few suggestions, most notably that Red needed to have more hair. When it was decided that the Wonderful 100 would be comprised of 100 named superheroes with unique designs, the team got to work with drafting up dozens upon dozens of options. Many of these never made it into the game. Among those cut were some with actual superpowers, including Wonder Telekinesis, Wonder Fire, Poison, Metal and Stone. There were some joke characters, such as one based around the Platinum Game logo, a pterodactyl, a centaur, a zombie, an hourglass and satan. There were also some duo characters like Wonder Cat and Dog, Wonder Tiger and Tamer, Wonder Magician and Rabbit and Wonder Circus. On top of that they had ideas for more colour based heroes that didn't ultimately join the main cast of Seven. These included Wonder Brown, Orange, Purple, Gold and Silver. Platinum Games insiders revealed to me that they once explored the possibility of using classic Sega characters as well. Concepts for Wonder Hedgehog and Wonder Fox characters were created, referencing Sega's mascot Sonic the Hedgehog and his sidekick Tails. As the concept art began to come together, so did a playable prototype which ran on PC hardware and was built around the Xbox 360 controller. Platinum was showing the game to multiple different publishers, although it was always their hope that Nintendo would want to pursue it for one of their platforms. At this early stage, the game was much slower than the eventual finished product and didn't yet have its elaborate combat system. The player could perform only a small handful of attacks and just three of the combat Unite morphs had been implemented, Unite Punch, Gun and Sword. In addition, the individual members of your party would automatically attack enemies close by by using their unique weapons, a feature that was later scrapped. The Unite morphs worked very very differently at this point in contrast with later builds of the game. The team had yet to come up with the idea of drawing the Unite Morphs, so instead they were selected by toggling an icon on the screen with a button. According to Kamiya, this feature was changed simply because he didn't regard it as fun. The Unite Morphs were all initiated by Wonder Red in this demo, regardless of type, unlike how it is in the final game where a different character will perform them based upon which morph is selected. 
You were able to recruit civilians with wonder masks, as you can in the release build, but since the aforementioned drawing mechanic had yet to be implemented, you had to interact with each one of them individually, unable to select more than one at a time. The demo was made in around a couple of months, and was therefore quite basic. It used placeholder models of reptilian creatures for enemies, which according to Komia were pre-existing assets taken from the Platinum Games archives. Several months after presenting their initial pitch to Nintendo, Platinum returned to them with this updated proposal. With the core concept intact, but their concerns were fitting in so many characters from different franchises gone, Nintendo finally gave them the green light. According to a US Gamer interview with Kamiya, the game was tentatively being thought of as a potential title for the Wii. The Wii U had yet to be publicly announced, and initially Platinum Games wasn't in on the secret of its existence. It wasn't long before that changed. At an early stage in development, the Wii U, then codenamed Project Cafe, became the new home for Kamiya's latest brainchild, the wonderful 100. As the project was starting to get off the ground, Nintendo chose which members of its software planning and development division would be overseeing it. Hitoshi Yamagami agreed to come on board as its producer and wanted his colleague Shingo Matsushita to join him due to his love for action games. He had previously supervised the creation of such titles as Sin and Punishment Star Successor. Matsushita had one big reservation about joining the project, however. He believed that its dark art style would limit its appeal among younger audiences. Nintendo's other staff were in agreement on this, the art direction needed to be adjusted. How they would present this demand to Platinum became the subject of rigorous discussion during internal meetings at Nintendo. They had heard that Platinum's developers were very particular about creative choices like these, and were therefore very cautious about upsetting them. They were especially concerned about offending Hideki Kamiya, who had previously made Beautiful Joe, which used a very similar style of visuals to the wonderful 100 prototypes. Ultimately, they decided to be straightforward with them and tell them it would have to be altered. Kamiya was less than pleased upon hearing the news. He had held concerns about working with Nintendo from the offset, expecting they would restrict his creative freedom and enforce unwanted changes upon his game. When he was told about Nintendo's suggestions, he began to think that his worst fears were being realised. In his own words, he complained to his producer Atsushi Inaba like a child. Eventually, Kamiya came around to the idea of a brighter, more colourful look and embraced it as a positive change. As time went on, the game's stories started to take shape. Kamiya decided that the wonderful 100 group would be led by seven main characters, Wonder Red, Blue, Green, Pink, Yellow, White and Black. The designs remained largely the same throughout development, although we can see a few small revisions that were made over earlier concept arts. Wonder Black was once slightly taller, and there were some tweaks made to Wonder Green's weapon to name a couple. Originally, it was drawn as a more realistic looking sniper rifle, before being changed changed to a more comic alternative that more closely resembled a toy gun. Around this time, Kamiya introduced the idea of giving Wonder Red an evil lookalike with similar abilities to his, who he would fight throughout the story. This would eventually become the character of Prince Vorkin. Earlier documents referred to him simply as Rival, since they had yet to settle upon a name. In the past, Kamiya has described earlier versions of the game in somewhat critical terms. In a couple of instances, he has been known to outright label these builds as boring and not fun at all. As a result, the gameplay was forced to change in some fundamental ways on its road to release. The game's existence was revealed to the public shortly after Nintendo's press conference at E3 2012 under the codename Project P100. At the time, the team had still yet to resolve a number of key issues 
enemies that Kamiya had with its combat. In the demo, it was restricted to a few Unite morphs and a mechanic which was being called the Rush Combo. This light attack essentially commanded all members of your party to rush towards an enemy and attack them en masse before automatically returning to rejoin the leader of the group. The Rush Combo was later cut after this first showing and is indicative of the game's more simplistic nature at this stage in development. It lacked an important component of combat in the release version, there was no way for characters to attack themselves to enemies and restrain them. In the final game, the rush combo was dropped in favour of a mechanic allowing you to do just that, called the team attack. By pressing the X button, a portion of your party can zoom towards an enemy, latching onto them. The enemy slowly takes damage from being repeatedly hit by them, and if enough wonderful ones are holding onto them, the enemy becomes temporarily immobilised. This gives your leader the opportunity to attack them separately using Unite Morphs. After the Project P100 demo at E3 2012, a number of stylistic alterations were made to the game. Originally, the leader of your group would have had manga-style speech bubbles appear above their head when issuing commands, with words like Rush and Go. This small feature was dropped shortly thereafter. The enemy ID card seen whenever the player encounters a new enemy type were given an overhaul too. In the P100 prototype, these used different fonts and colours. They also used to specify which material material the subject was made of, but this was later replaced by the location where they were first encountered. Furthermore, the name of each enemy was changed to be spelled phonetically. Another key difference in the art of P100 is the early version of the Wonder Pendants, the badges on the suits of each hero, which appeared in the shape of a mask here. The revised badges from the final game, which have a W on them, can still be spotted by eagle-eyed viewers in the 2012 demo, however. On the ranking screen shown after each section, the wonderful ones can be seen sporting the updated pendants. This small tease seemingly went unnoticed until after the game was released. In the year following its first showing at E3 2012, the game would evolve considerably and its title would become set in stone. Originally, it was thought that its name would not change from the wonderful 100 until producer Hitoshi Yamagami expressed concerns with the number 100 being forgettable. He suggested 101 as an alternative to which Kamiya agreed, since coincidentally, it would neatly tie into one of the final cutscenes he had been writing in which the team find their 100 101st hero. The game was set for release in August 2013, but with only several months remaining until this deadline, Kamiya was still not entirely satisfied with its gameplay. One of its most crucial mechanics, which allows the player to execute multiple Unite Morphs simultaneously, wasn't introduced until May 2013, just three months before launch. There had been repeated conversations among the development staff about implementing such a feature, but it had been held back by fears of putting too much stress on the engine and causing performance issues. Producer Atsushi Inaba in particular was skeptical of whether or not it could be done, saying, Just thinking about all the secondary problems it would cause just made my head spin. With time running out, Kamiya took it upon himself to cut through the bureaucracy and politics typically attached to making such a big change and ordered his staff to build it in. He ignored Inaba's advice and bypassed Nintendo completely, adding it in without consulting them while their producers were otherwise engaged. In an Awata Asks interview, Nintendo's Shingo Machusta recalled his fury at discovering this. I hadn't been angry like that in a while. I was like, how could you do that now? 
The risk involved in this decision was potentially huge and could have introduced enough technical problems to necessitate delaying the game. However, the addition was made fairly painlessly. Kamiya realised that the work they had already done on their multiplayer mode made having multiple Unite Morphs in the story mode much easier. It also elevated the combat in a big way, he felt. That gave the game polish. Nintendo really looked after us, ever since the period when the game wasn't fun at all, so I wanted to do my best for them, even at the last minute. Yamagami agrees with the director's impulsive choice in retrospect. It made it a much better game. Because of it, the players are able to do a lot more, he said. Kamiya has expressed his satisfaction with the final product, although there is at least one feature of note that he regrets not being able to add. Miis. We tried to make it possible to join your own me with the wonderful 100 as a hero, Kamiya tweeted. We hope we can do it in the wonderful 102. In the end, Platinum Games persevered and were able to meet the game's deadline of August 2013. The developers fought through times of uncertainty, when even their own director didn't think the game was fun. It received positive reviews, although it was not able to meet Nintendo's sales targets, becoming one of the lowest selling first party Wii U titles. Despite that, the game has earned a passionate cult following and Platinum Games continues to believe in the IP. Its initial failure didn't deter Platinum from pursuing other ways for the wonderful 101 to live on. On February 3rd, 2020, a remastered version of the game for Nintendo Switch was successfully crowdfunded on Kickstarter within less than 20 minutes of its launch. One of the hottest properties to emerge from Nintendo's experimental foray into two-screen gaming, the Wii U, was Splatoon. Despite hardware sales falling well short of forecast, Splatoon, a fresh IP, emerged as one of its strongest selling titles. Its quirky mixture of ink-based combat and trendy humanoid squids proved a hit and the foundation for a new series. While Nintendo itself has described its origins in detail, this is the story of a previously unknown original original Nintendo game that once could have taken its place, that some believe may even be connected to it. Before Splatoon's earliest of prototypes, Nintendo intended to bolster their feature lineup with a brand new first party shooter and look to a team of developers with experience in the genre to realise it. 2011 saw Nintendo setting themselves up for the generation ahead. Their next home console, codenamed Project Cafe, was on the horizon, and so preparations to build its lineup of games were well underway. They sought to assemble a diverse first-party portfolio catering to a variety of different tastes. One genre they did not have covered, however, was shooters. With the Metroid Prime series on ice, Nintendo lacked an exclusive first-party shooter of any kind, something that had not gone unnoticed by their higher-ups. To rectify this, the company widened their search for a development team beyond their own studios. In March 2011, they tapped a third-party developer that had caught their attention in recent years. High Voltage Software had risen to prominence during the Wii's life cycle for championing the system and attempting to produce ambitious content for it that was geared towards core gamers. This began in 2009 with their original IP The Conduit, a first-person shooter about 
about uncovering an alien conspiracy. The game garnered no shortage of attention from the press, giving High Voltage an outlet to sing the console's praises and talk up their extensive plans to support it. In the short term, this strategy paid off for them. Some mixed opinions among critics didn't deter Wii owners from buying the conduit and making it moderately successful. However, the company's fortunes would change for the worse over the two years that followed. Shortly before the conduit was launching, they debuted another brand new property, The Grinder, at E3 2009. This horror-themed co-op shooter attempted to capitalise on the conduit type, but ultimately failed to make it to market. Publishers weren't interested in funding it, despite High Voltage developing demos for three different potential versions of it. It was a costly experiment that ended up going nowhere and being shelved. Next came a sequel to The Conduit that also struggled behind the scenes. Financial issues had led to layoffs at the studio, which severely disrupted its development. With its sophomore entry suffering from numerous issues, the feature of the series was cast into doubt. But as Conduit 2 neared its release date, an unexpected new opportunity arose for the Illinois-based developer in March 2011. According to several sources linked to High Voltage, Nintendo contacted them, expressing an interest in them developing an original first-party IP together. The game would be made at High Voltage Software by their staff, with Nintendo's oversight and funding. This proposal was the outcome of a strong relationship between the two parties. High Voltage had been developing exclusive original content for the Wii from the start, and this loyalty hadn't gone unnoticed at Nintendo. As far back as during work on the first Conduit game, they were providing the developers with early access to prototypes for technology like the Wii Motion Plus add-on. Early into their dialogue about producing this new game, Nintendo presented a vague outline for the project. According to members of the team that worked on it, they were wanted a shooting game that the whole family could play. Their desire to create this style of game in particular was why High Voltage had been chosen for the task. They not only had experience in working on shooters, but also technology for making them already custom built for Nintendo hardware. As for their decision to target a broad family audience with the game, as opposed to more traditional fans of shooters, an ex-employee believes that Nintendo had identified a gap in their lineup, as well as the wider market, for a more accessible type of shooting game. How would they make this shooter for everyone? Nintendo had an answer to that as well, or rather the germ of an idea they thought High Voltage could expand upon themselves. Very simply, their suggestion was water guns. As opposed to conventional pistols and rifles, water guns would provide an alternative that would be less intimidating for family audiences. The rest, however, was up to High Voltage to figure out. Their creatives were left by Nintendo to determine how they would contextualise why water guns were being used in this game's world and which characters were using them. A small group of no more than 10 people was chosen to tackle this conundrum. The team, mostly a combination of designers and artists would be led by Chief Creative Officer Eric Nofsinger and Art Director Matt Corso. This duo was notable for leading the developer's biggest projects at the time, including both Conduit games as well as their ill-fated title The Grinder. From the beginning, it was being envisioned that their Nintendo project would follow in the footsteps of those games by being a first-person shooter. Between the members of High Voltage, it didn't take long for ideas to form about the characters in this world and why they would be using water for combat in the first place. Their concept was all about robots, mechanical beings that were susceptible to blasts of water which could fry their circuits and destroy them. 
During the fairly short period that the project was in the works, concept art was produced to illustrate some of these ideas. Unfortunately, much of what was made has since been lost, but a former artist from the studio agreed to recreate some of their work in progress concept art from it for the purposes of this video. According to them, the team was pulling inspiration from a variety of sources to realise the look of the game. Their characters were partly informed by designs from the Mega Man series and the 2005 animated movie Robots. The environments, on the other hand, look to one of Nintendo's own titles, Super Mario Sunshine. With distinct similarities to one of that game's levels, Peanut Park, the world of High Voltage's game had a theme park style to it with water at its heart. One piece of art conveys the aesthetic they were aspiring towards, a crossroads between nature and machinery. Water was central to the game's premise, and that manifested itself in a more literal sense throughout its setting. We would have seen streams of water flowing through levels, with transportation powered by hydraulics. There was a sense that water was not only a means of war, but something that somehow fueled all facets of life for the robots inhabiting these lands. The robots themselves were planned to come in many different shapes and sizes. Some had wheels or extending arms, others had water guns literally bolted onto their bodies. There were also robots that would use everyday items to aid themselves in battle like this one wearing a raincoat for protection. Water guns weren't the only weapons planned to be made available either. They were developing ideas for guns that used other liquids. One they had considered was a bazooka made from repurposed PVC pipe that would launch sewage. There was a weapon cobbled together from a chemistry set that fired hazardous chemicals and a gun that could spray electrified water onto the battlefield. At the time, the game was not being thought of as a potential multiplayer juggernaut like Splatoon. While multiplayer had been discussed, they were more focused on nailing their core concept first. Some of the developers I was able to speak to about the Untitled project believed that it was set to move forward and that Nintendo's interest in its concept was genuine. However, it was less than a month into this early form of pre-production when relations between High Voltage Software and Nintendo took a turn for the worse. On April 10th, 2011, word that the two were working together was leaked online by a High Voltage Software employee. This worker shared some details about their dealings with a popular Nintendo news outlet. What this site then posted was a list of rumours from them, including the claim that High Voltage had been sharing water assets with Nintendo for a new game. For the brief period it was available online, the article was dismissed by many as baseless, but behind the scenes, it had sent High Voltage into a panic. The studio had a leaker in their midst, and this was a major problem. The news had not escaped the watchful eye of Nintendo either, their higher-ups were soon informed, and the company issued High Voltage with an ultimatum. High Voltage would need to learn who was responsible for this information getting out, and ensure that no further leaks would occur on their part. What followed was an extensive and investigation to unmask the culprit. The article was swiftly pulled at the company's request and each of their employees was spoken to individually. According to former workers, they were given assurances that they would not be fired if they came forward as the perpetrator. High Voltage refused to nominate a scapegoat and throw one of their own under the bus for the sake of the project's continuation. Despite their efforts, nobody claimed responsibility for the leak and it would forever remain a mystery among High Voltage staff. During my own investigation into the events, I was able to pinpoint the source of the leak 
leak and discuss it with them directly. From speaking to the alleged leaker and others who were in contact with them at the time of the incident, I was able to determine that the leak was carried out maliciously, an act of defiance in response to what they believed were unsatisfactory working conditions they had experienced at High Voltage. Since the company was unable to pinpoint the source of the leak, Nintendo's higher-ups felt they had no choice other than to discontinue their project. Former developers from High Voltage say that Nintendo needed assurances that anything they were working on together would remain confidential. With an unknown leaker encroaching upon their negotiations at such an early stage, confidentiality was not something High Voltage could promise them. This was the end of the road for their short-lived first-party Nintendo project. What would have been a dream contract for many of those working on it lasted around only a month in total. Just days after this, the company launched Conduit 2 and faced further hardships. The game was nowhere near as successful as the original, selling poorly around the world. It marked the last project they would have published by Sega. Ex-employees claim that some internal pitches for Wii U games were made, but none of them moved forward. The failure of Conduit 2 and the demise of their Nintendo project in some ways spelled the end of the company's love affair with Nintendo hardware. They began to focus more on Xbox and PlayStation platforms platforms, working on such games as Saints Row got out of hell. In the years after their robot shooter project, rumours swirled around High Voltage that Nintendo had intentions of taking the core idea of a water gun game and developing it internally. Three years later when Splatoon was announced, many of High Voltage's staff believed that what they worked on back in 2011 was a far removed early incarnation of those same basic ideas. According to Nintendo, Splatoon was born out of a 10 person team that produced a plethora of different game concepts in the search for a potential new IP. A prototype for a game where players control blocks of tofu emerged as the favourite. Players had to spray ink to cover as much ground as possible and the team to cover the most turf would win. This was an early demo for what would eventually become Splatoon's Turf War mode. Nintendo itself has never acknowledged High Voltage Software's project and neither companies have discussed it publicly. High Voltage declined to be a part of this video. For some developers, memories of the project are bittersweet. One source from the team expressed regret over not being able to make the game, but admitted they might never have been able to measure up to what Nintendo later accomplished with Splatoon. On the subject of the leak that brought the project down, they had this to say. This happened seven years ago, and the company is a third the size, with 80-90% turnover since then, and the fallout still weighs on the studio. I totally understand the ire of the person that leaked, but rather than sticking it to management, they screwed everyone at the studio for the better part of a decade. After a year or two on the market, support for Nintendo's Wii U console famously began to dry up somewhat. Due to a combination of factors like hardware power and sales performance, games from third parties became increasingly hard to come by. One of the system's biggest supporters earlier on, in 2012, had been Ubisoft. Before it was released, they had originally pledged a number of exclusives to the Wii U like Rayman Legends, Rabbids Land and Zombie U. Although as time went on, the company's enthusiasm enthusiasm for the console faded. They were devoting less resources to it, and some of those Wii U exclusive games were ported to other platforms. Ubisoft hadn't given up on Nintendo's machine entirely though, as noted by their CEO Yves Guillemot in 2014. Speaking to Polygon, he revealed they had an unannounced game for Wii U that was completed and awaiting release. For a time, fans avidly speculated about which game this was, but as the months went by, there was no announcement to speak of. The 
project's release never came, and its identity was never officially disclosed by Ubisoft. With an investigation that will take us into the heart of the company, I'll be sharing with you a look at this game, and why it was finished, but never released. Ubisoft's aforementioned Wii U game came to be back in 2011. The industry was entering a transitional period as the next generation of consoles beckoned. Nintendo was first in line for a hardware update, winding down on its hugely successful Wii and preparing to usher in its successor, the Wii U, codenamed Project Cafe. Ubisoft had taken a liking to the console, privately pledging a number of games to it and letting their teams run wild with the possibilities of its centerpiece, the gamepad. With new innovations come new IP and Ubisoft was looking to their Paris branch for one that would properly take advantage of the new controller. The studio had seen plenty of success on the Wii as they shepherded the Raving Rabbit series and were responsible for Just Dance, placing them high in Ubisoft's estimation. A key figure at Ubisoft Paris throughout all this was Nicholas Normandon, who had been with them since Rayman 3 Huddlem Havoc in 2003. When the publisher found itself searching for new games to join their Wii U lineup, Normandon was quick to step up to the plate with ideas of his own. Ubisoft had been looking for projects that would be built around the system's two-screen setup, but up until that point, solid ideas about how to do that were in short supply. One of the only projects going that did plan to fully take advantage of the gamepad was Ubisoft Montpellier's first-person shooter Killer Freaks from Outer Space, which used gyro aiming and off-TV play. Norman Dunn's concept took a very different approach from Ubisoft's other Wii U projects. It was a multiplayer game based around social interaction with the gamepad at its core. Generally speaking, the idea was that it would be a series of games about how well you know the people you're playing with and what you secretly think of one another. Players would discreetly answer questions about each other on the gamepad's touchscreen. Eventually, the game would reveal the results of those answers in a surprising or humorous way on the TV. Its name was Know Your Friends. It was pitched to Ubisoft via an interactive slideshow presentation as opposed to a Wii U prototype. They were receptive to the ideas, however, and the project was quickly greenlit. It was planned to be a low-budget affair developed by Ubisoft Paris with a short production schedule. Nicholas Normandon was placed in charge of it. Early on in its lifespan, the Paris studio began to deliberate over which engine the game would run on. They were able to narrow it down to a number one choice, the UbiArt framework. They wanted the game to have a simple, approachable art style, and it was thought that hand-drawn art brought to life by UbiArt was the right way to go. At the time, UbiArt itself was still under development. It was being made by a relatively small team at Ubisoft Montpellier and would be showcased for the first time in Rayman Origins. It was garnering praise from all over Ubisoft, and it was expected that more games would soon take advantage of it. The Know Your Friends team at Ubi Paris hoped to be among the first to work with it and ask the Montpellier officers for access to it. However, according to former Ubisoft workers, this request was swiftly denied. They claim that during this time, some of Ubisoft's different branches had become intensely competitive with one another. The Montpellier studio had apparently grown protective of the new technology and therefore forbid the Know Your Friends developers from using it. This was despite the fact that Ubisoft Paris was actually already working with UbiArt. Just one floor below the Know Your Friends team, another group of people was supplementing the development of Montpellier's pet project, Rayman Origins. With the UbiArt framework off-limits to them, the team had to rethink their art direction for the game. They soon arrived at the idea of a cutout art style, reminiscent of early South Park episodes. Almost everything on screen used cut-up pieces of real-life photography thrown together like a scrapbook, 
and character animations were directly inspired by the Muppets. As production got underway, the developers were able to further experiment with the capabilities of the gamepad. The title would join the ultimately short list of games to make use of its front-facing camera. Every time a new player joined the game, they could create an in-game avatar for themselves and it would be saved as a passport for future use. The player would capture a picture of their face using the gamepad's camera, which would then be mapped onto a character in the game to represent them. It worked similar to Nintendo's Maze in a sense, and the game would automatically fit your character into a variety of comical outfits and quirky animations. Every aspect of the game was designed to play upon social dynamics in interesting and usually humorous ways. Some questions would intentionally embarrass players, others would reveal more about their personalities and habits. Know Your Friends wasn't just about having prior knowledge of your friends, but also learning more about them as you played. In some of the modes, players would answer questions about themselves on the gamepad, such as their opinions on other people and their habits, before the others would have to correctly identify their chosen answers. While some of these questions were fairly friendly, occasionally the game might introduce something more probing and potentially awkward, like asking players for their honest opinions on goods manufactured under poor working conditions, or if they've ever accidentally hit an animal while driving. The next player would then have to guess their answer, and at the end of each round the game would reveal how well you were in sync with one another. The game included a wide variety of minigame formats and options to cater for different social situations. Players could opt for more family-friendly content, or an option for close friends that would delve into more risque topics like alcohol consumption and sex. There were plans to possibly add more adult subjects like politics via DLC packs had the game released. Behind closed doors at Ubisoft, Know Your Friends enjoyed a warm reception, say former employees. Multiple playtests were conducted among staff outside the development team, including some Ubisoft higher-ups, to positive results. They found that the minigames had a quirky charm and humour that clicked with those that tried them. Soon the project was being hyped up internally as potentially being the company's next big thing. An employee from the development team claimed that Ubisoft's management was very excited about its prospects and believed it could even go on to rival the success of Just Dance. As a game made on a small budget, Know Your Friends would not have been a full price title. Ubisoft believed that hitting that sweet spot in price, along with the right marketing approach, could result in a hit among casual players. According to Ubisoft sources, a large chunk of the game was done before the Wii U was even on sale. The vast majority of production on the title was apparently finished by the end of 2012. Further work took place throughout 2013, but one former artist suggests that had Ubisoft wanted to, they could have released it as early as the Wii U's launch in November 2012. Developers described the end of work on Know Your Friends as fairly unceremonious. There was no launch party to mark the milestone since Ubisoft had yet to lay out their plans for how and when to release it. Convinced of its potential, the higher-ups wanted to wait and drop the game at a more optimal time for sales. At the Wii U's launch, Ubisoft was already focused on promoting Zombie U, a horror shooter built around the system's two-screen gameplay. This was another Wii U exclusive game like Know Your Friends that Ubisoft believed would perform well and possibly mark the start of a new series. Unfortunately for them, the optimistic internal sales forecast for Zombie U weren't realised. The game flopped, much to Ubisoft's dismay. The whole ordeal left the company cautious of Nintendo's new machine. When sales didn't sufficiently pick up after the 2012 holiday period, they began revising their support for it. Rayman Legends was originally intended to be a Wii U 
exclusive launch game 2 before it was pushed back to February 2013 to make further improvements. Fans were eagerly awaiting its release when less than 3 weeks before launch Ubisoft announced they were delaying it a further 7 months. The game would no longer be exclusive to Wii U, now arriving on Xbox 360 and PS3 as well. In the middle of all this was Know Your Friends, a game now stuck in a post-production limbo state. As console sales fell in early 2013, Ubisoft continued losing confidence in Wii U. They had grown skeptical of its viability as a platform and their ability to sell games on it. Consequently, the decision was made to indefinitely postpone the release of Know Your Friends until the situation improved. Ubisoft hoped that Nintendo could work to drive up hardware sales themselves and that the platform might become more profitable for them in the long term. The developers that worked on Know Your Friends were told that its release was on hold, but it was just a matter of time before Ubisoft would start rolling it out. As the months went by, however, it became apparent to its creators that time was possibly never coming. Some people from the team are said to have campaigned for its release inside Ubisoft in the years after it was finished, although, according to a former artist, Ubisoft's marketing division prevented it from moving forward. Sources from the company claimed that the marketing department was given autonomy from the Paris studio to determine when and if to release it. They had originally intended to launch it in either 2013 or 14, but when there were you games failed to meet expectations, all of that was cast into uncertainty. Ubisoft's marketing was left to decide what to do with it and eventually chose against releasing it. They didn't think that the console had been able to tap into the broader mainstream that the Wii did and therefore didn't think there was an audience on it for Know Your Friends. They believed that reaching the audience the game was intended for would have been a costly task, including a TV ad campaign. Instead of risking another Wii U failure, the funds that would have been spent marketing it were used to push other games. As it became clear the Wii U game would never officially see the light of day, Ubisoft Paris briefly attempted to get it released on other platforms. They suggested a downloadable version on the PSN store, as well as ports for iOS and Android. The mobile version made the most progress, ex-developers say, receiving a playable prototype before Ubisoft shot down the possibility of developing it into a full game. After a lengthy internal battle over the fate of Know Your Friends, this was when any lingering hope for it was finally extinguished. Wii U sales never picked up to Ubisoft's liking, and thus their stance on the project remained unchanged. Know Your Friends was never officially announced, despite being completely finished and even receiving a rating from the ESRB. The vast majority of the team from Know Your Friends at Ubi Paris went on to co-develop the Nintendo Switch exclusive Mario Plus Rabbids Kingdom Battle. That game was produced by Xavier Manzanares, the producer of Know Your Friends. Nicholas Normandon, on the other hand, joined Tom Clancy's Ghost Recon Wildlands as a senior programmer. 